welcome to Sunday's podcast, Conversations with a Specialist. My name is Matt. And I'm Ryan. And we're first year medical students at the University of Notre Dame. For this episode, our guest is Dr. Ross Walker. He is a cardiologist based in Sydney with over 40 years of medical experience. His expertise in stress echocardiography, transthoracic and transesophageal echoes, as well as in the field of preventative cardiology. Dr. Walker has authored several books, including The Five Stages of Health and Diets Don't Work. Has appeared in various TV and radio programs and professionally speaks and lectures both nationally and internationally. Uh, Dr. Walker, Walker, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Okay, maybe I'll kick it off with the first question then, if that's all right. So we just wanted to ask a question that might be pretty, uh, I guess, interesting for a lot of first and second years listening. So mm. what was your kind of pathway into cardiology and what did that all look like in terms of training, timing, how many years, that kind of thing? Sure. Well, I actually started off thinking I was going to be a general practitioner and there's nothing wrong at all with being a general practitioner. And I went up and worked in the country for a while as a resident, intern resident, and my wife said, you're not going to enjoy being a general practitioner. You should go and just, and I always do it. My wife says, as any good husband does. And so I went back and did my medical training. So as you're probably aware as students, you students, interns, residents, and then you either stream into general practice or stream into a specialty, whether that be medicine or whether that be surgery or radiology or pathology or psychiatry, of course. So I streamed into medical because I, I actually don't like working with my hands. I, I like, as Hercule Perot would say, using the little grey cells. And then when I did my general medical training, I just thought, well, what's the best of all these specialties? And, and cardiology was the thing that really attracted me because it, it's got a blend of science, diagnostic skills, and also patient interaction. And you're not just a technocrat because of the sort of blend of cardiology that I practice. On that topic and talking about that blend that you enjoy, what are the sort of main things you do enjoy about being a cardiologist? I think the sort of job, I've got a very weird job. So I don't do any hospital work anymore. And hospital work I find fascinating. I love the diagnostic process. Uh, a message I'd like to give all of you is that 90% of your diagnosis is to learn how to take a good history. Now, you've been told that, but it's vitally important. But so many people do all the tests before they even talk to the patient. I think it's really interesting to be able to sit down and, and it's almost like a, a detective work where you sit down and you work through all the different hints that people give you. And often it's it's little things that they say and the way they say it that push you towards some form of diagnosis. And cardiology allows you to do that in, in so many ways. And it's, it's so wonderful that you not only can look at the lifestyle aspects, the therapeutic aspects, the preventative aspects. So in, as far as I'm concerned, it's got it all. And in fact, for all of you who are just starting off your careers, it's my view, having done this job for over 40 years, that medicine of any sort is easily the most privileged and most important job on the planet, apart from being a mother and a father. So I think it's just such a privilege to be a doctor. And even after 40 years, I love every day going to work. Just on that note, but I guess in a little bit of a different flavor, would you say that there's any area of cardiology in particular that you're interested in or sort of any? Sort oh, of abs absolutely. And, and what really shaped my career when I was a registrar training, I'd go down to the post bypass ward after people had had their bypass and I'd see these quite obese people or people who continue to smoke going back for their second lot of bypass. And I said to myself, how could anyone have this mutilating operation on their chest twice? So I thought there's got to be a better way of doing this than just shoving pills or procedures at people. And I say this all the time in my professional talks. 
the best treatment of heart disease, the best treatment of cancer, the best treatment of any modern disease is not to get them in the first place. It's called prevention. And I believe that over 90% of modern diseases are completely preventable with the sort of programs I offer my patients. Do you give an example of some of those programs by any chance? And the prevention? Oh, easily, easily. And this is what actually drives me nuts. Doctors aren't that powerful, by the way, guys. We think we are, but we're not. 80% of everyone's program is based around lifestyle, practicing the five keys of being healthy, which I'll get to at the end, because I was asked to give some tips about what you guys could do for good health. But to me, these five keys are not negotiable for any of us, and it's 80% of anyone's management. So when you look at, say, for example, therapeutics, and you look at pharmaceutical drugs, that to me is 10%. And I'm one of the very unusual specialists who also believes in evidence-based supplements, and that's another 10%. So again, five aspects to this. One is lifestyle. Two is appropriate use of pharmaceuticals. Three, appropriate use of supplements that have an evidence base. Four is for people to come for regular follow-up. And five, to have a relationship with your patients where they know they can contact you if something goes wrong, because things do go wrong because we live in a world that's uh, imperfect. So to me, preventative cardiology is the most exciting part of cardiology, but but I just like the, the whole concept of prevention. Sure. I'm just going back to, I guess, cardiology in general and sort of students getting an idea of what it all looks like, because we'll touch on, like you said, the health things a little bit later. Could you describe maybe what is a typical day look like for you if there is a typical day? Well, yeah, you see, again, my life is different to a standard cardiologist. So a standard cardiologist would probably go and do their hospital rounds first for a couple of hours and be in their rooms. If they're a procedural, they might spend a day doing angiograms and and that, that would be a standard day, maybe if they're an echo person reporting echoes. But for someone like me, I I work three days a week in my practice for full days. So I get there at I start seeing patients at nine and walk out at about three or four, just seeing patients all day, do that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, work Thursday morning. But I I do about four or five hours of radio per week. I have my own show on a Sunday night. So just a, a shameless plug that's healthy living on 2GB from seven to nine on a Sunday night, talking about all aspects of health. It's not, I, just, I just don't focus on cardiology. And I'm on a few boards as well. I've got clinics in uh, Bangkok and Koh Samui. So we've got contacts with a lot of other companies that have health-related themes to them. So that's my days are rather busy doing all that sort of stuff. Just on that topic, Dr. Walker, I was wondering how you, you know, is it, was there a point in your career where you were able to branch out more in those other interests you're talking about? Or were you sort of always able to explore those other things that you're trying out and talking about at the moment? Well, I think I think you've got to look at serendipity. And it was interesting that in 1994, I was approached to give a talk for a thing called the Food Media Group. So I gave the talk to the Food Media Group and one of the speakers bureaus rang me after that and said, we heard you're a very good speaker. Would you like to do this professionally? And I thought, well, that's great. And so I've had the privilege to go around the world. I've spoken at the biggest insurance conference called MDRT about five or six times, 12,000 people in the stadium in New Orleans, one month before Cyclone Katrina, 35,000 people to a cricket stadium in India twice. And it's a pretty privileged, exciting life to be able to do things like that, plus to have a national radio show, plus to see patients and and to, to develop a relationship with patients over a period of time. So they're the sort of weird things I've, I've been able to do. And it's, it's just through serendipity. But I do love a microphone, as I think you're probably gathering from this conversation. Yeah, definitely. And on that note, I think a lot of students think about 
big question marks in terms of their career going forward. Is there mm. anything you can think about that shaped your career or anything that sort of took you in this path or was it just following what you enjoyed? Yeah, I, th- I think it was just looking for the opportunities when they arose. And, and again, I've, I've had a rather unusual career that the f- I got married very early and we have five children, but we, we had three children pretty early on. And so by the time I'd finished my specialty at age 29, it was either go to the Mayo Clinic and work my way up through the professorial ranks or be a father. And, and so my wife and I went up to Coffs Harbour and I set up there as a cardiologist for eight years. But after eight years, my kids were starting to get towards being teenagers. And I thought, this is not really fair. Better to give them a better opportunity going to good schools in Sydney. So I was told, look, you might have been the king of Coffs Harbour, but you're going to struggle because there are too many cardiologists back in Sydney. So I so I came back, worked damn hard and, and re-established a practice. I already had a very good practice in Coffs, but then had to re-establish for nothing. So that that happened. And then I was approached by the Sydney Adventist Hospital. I was working at the Sydney Adventist Hospital at Warunga as a, as a cardiologist echo person there. And they wanted me to help them set up a service in coronary calcium scoring. So I'd, I'd read a bit about coronary calcium scoring. I thought this was the last piece in the preventative puzzle to be able to take a picture non-invasively of someone's arteries and measure how much muck they have in their arteries. So anyhow, I set that up with the Sydney Adventist Hospital, but strangely, it was just too early. And we had this incredible backlash against us from conservative medicine. The Cardiac Society put out a position statement against calcium scoring. It's now proven beyond a doubt. I think it was proven back then, but it's proven beyond a doubt over the last 22 years to be the most important preventative screening test for cardiac disease. But I copped it something horrible at that stage. And that that was my greatest challenge to have to overcome that and rebuild my career yet again. So I was coming back from Coffs Harbour, rebuilding my career in Sydney then, then doing the calcium scoring with the Sydney Venice Hospital. It was a great service, but a lousy business because of the backlash. And we were really derided by many conservative people in the, in the medical industry for doing it. And then so I had to rebuild my practice again. So there's been quite a few challenges but it's all been a great teaching experience. So as I said, I gave up hospital work 20 years ago and it's just continuing on what I'm doing now. And, I, and although I'm, I'm getting close to retirement age, I'll retire when somebody taps me on the shoulder and tells me I'm not doing it well anymore. I have no desire to stop. Touching on those challenges that you're mentioning and, and also your extended, your extensive family, how was juggling family and career during those times throughout? Well, that was the beauty of going to the country. And I think this is something that I think is very important for all the students starting off. But every medical student, every intern, every resident, every registrar should spend six months in the country just to A, so you like it, B, to improve rural health. And you might, you might then say, oh, I will go back and work there. But there should be a much easier method to allow people to say, okay, I've worked here for eight, nine, 10 years to make it easier to get back into the city. If if you choose to come back to the city, some people would choose to stay there, but I think it would solve rural health to have good, enthusiastic young people working in a rural environment. So I, I think that's something that would be a good way of allowing people to enjoy that life. And I've got to say, working in the country allowed me to be a better father, a better husband, because I was at home more, more available. I wasn't driving all around the city to do work. And so you're not spending all the time in the car. It was for, I'd come home for lunch, take me five minutes to get from my office to my home. And, and I think those sort of things are important. 
Um, just touching on the rural health that you mentioned and how important it is for students to get that exposure, our University of Notre Dame definitely puts a lot of emphasis on that. But could you maybe give us, I guess, a brief overview of the time you spent there and maybe some of the big challenges there are with rural health? Oh, sure. Well, as I said, I was there for eight years and I really enjoyed the first seven, but I was starting to get twitchy after. So I got the seven-year issue, I suppose. But the challenges are that it's much better now because places like Coffs Harbour are big rural centres, but it was a small hospital when I was there and we just didn't have the facilities. But as a junior physician, that really improves your diagnostic skills because you didn't have the high-powered specialists down the road. You didn't have the CT scanners or the MRIs that we all have these days. So you had to use, as Hercule Bro said, the little grey cells to actually figure things out and just rely on your diagnostic skills. And what it's also made for me it allowed me the training that I had in that eight years to really improve my diagnostic skills and not rely on the teaching hospitals and all of the other diagnostic equipment that was there available in. But these days, it is a lot different. But still, you might go out and work, say, west of Sydney, where the facilities still aren't great. It's a very, very good experience. Going on that and talking about having that opportunity to have solo diagnostic skills and being on your own to make those decisions... Are there any cases that sort of stick out to have the greatest impact on you throughout your life? Yeah, well, I've had many. I I mean, 40 years, you see a lot of different stuff. But I I can tell you a story which I think is a really important story, not so much for me, but for students to understand. I saw a guy 25 years ago, one of my favourite patients, and this guy had the worst heart failure I'd ever seen. I did an echo of his heart. The heart was almost not moving. And it wasn't a diagnostics challenge because this man was a wharfie who used to drink 20 schooners a day and he had a severe dilated cardiomyopathy induced by alcohol. And I said to him, Al, you've got a choice here, mate. You're 42. You keep drinking and doing what you're doing. You'll be dead within a month. You stop drinking. You'll recover. And I, I struck a chord in his head and he stopped drinking. He came back a month later. He lost 20 litres of fluid. He had 20 litres of extra fluid on board because his heart just wasn't working. But we got rid of the toxin that was causing this, i.e. alcohol. And and basically, it allowed me to formulate what I call my five-point power plan. So firstly, number one, people have to make the decision. When something's going wrong in their life, you've got to make the decision you want to change. Alan made that decision. Number two, here's the interesting thing. Nature abhors a vacuum. You've got to create a new pattern to replace the old one. So, and now wait for this, this is going to knock your socks off. So this is a 42-year-old knockabout wharfie. G'day, mate, how are you? He stopped drinking and he replaced his fascination with alcohol with a fascination for ancient Egypt. So at 42, this guy became an amateur Egyptologist where he read everything he could about Egypt, he learned everything he did, and all the money he used to spend on beer, he put in a a bank account in the days when you could travel without any problems. He and his wife went over to Egypt and he had this incredibly exhilarating experience by doing that. So number one, make the decision. Sorry, number two, look at the limiting patterns. The limiting patterns is he'd go to work, there weren't any tugs on down the wharf, he'd go over and start drinking. So I stopped him working because he just wasn't well enough to keep working. So we stopped his limiting pattern. Number three, create the new pattern. So for him, he replaced that with a much better habit and rewarded himself by saving up the money. Number four, you've got to train the habit. It takes you at least 30 days of doing something to get into the right habit for doing things. And then number five, and this is what really annoys me about a lot of these things, you've got to live the program for the rest of your life. 
Now, I see people going to 12-week programs. 12-week programs don't work. It's like I wrote a book 20 years ago called Diets Don't Work. You go on a diet like you go on a holiday. What happens when you go on a holiday? You come home. What happens when you go on a diet? You stop. You've got to develop habits that will stay with you for the rest of your life, and that's what Al's done, and he's still one of my faithful, beautiful patients, and I have this wonderful relationship with him. And that's one of the the beauties of, of having a chronic practice you build up these relationships with people over time who become really your friends and they love seeing you, they enjoy it. And now I'm looking after the children of people I've looked after for years. And that's a real privilege. Uh, That's amazing to hear. And just on that sort of note about health and things you can do in that five-point plan, touch on that question we sort of mentioned before. Is there any sort of tips you have, health tips, lifestyle tips for med students, especially in this day and age, to keep themselves healthy? Easily. What I call the five keys of being healthy from number one, the least important up to number five, the most important. And there is such a strong evidence base around this. So number one, you cannot be healthy and smoke, drink too much grog and snort cocaine. Now, what worries me about you young'uns is you think it's okay to go out on a Saturday night and get yourself written off. And you don't realize that you knock off your brain and liver function for about four or five days until you do it again. So that binge on a Saturday night is not a good thing. So if you go to drink alcohol, one or two glasses a few days a week, have a day or two off just to prove to yourself you can. That's number one. Number two, and this is vitally important, is good quality sleep. Seven to eight hours of good quality sleep is as good for your body as not smoking. Number three is nutrition. And nutrition is easy to talk about, a bit harder to do. It's okay for you young'uns, but as you get older, your metabolism slows and it's very easy to put on weight. So I say to everybody, we should be having two or three pieces of fruit per day, three to five servings of vegetables per day, servings about a half a carrot. And you say, well, that's easy, doc. If it's easy, how come less than 10% of people do it? And those who do have the lowest rates of heart disease and cancer in the community, and it does nothing to your damn cholesterol. Cholesterol is very much overdone. So Fruit and vegetables should be the base of everything we eat with, on top of that, if you want to, little bits of meat, eggs, dairy, chicken, fish, nuts, and olive oil. The only diet that has any strong long-term evidence base is the Mediterranean diet. Avoid white death. White death is sugar, white bread, pasta, potatoes, to a lesser extent, rice. That's number three. Number four is the second best drug on the planet which is three to five hours every week of moderate exertion. So it's important to have an ongoing exercise habit that you keep with you for the rest of the day. And having a regular exercise habit reduces your risk for heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, depression by about 30%, osteoporosis 50%, you drop your blood pressure and you sleep better. Number five, best drug on the planet is a thing called happiness. And people who are happy and enjoy their lives and get on with the people around them are much healthier than people who aren't. I'm not saying happy people don't get sick. They just don't get as sick as unhappy people. And I've got to say, I've been doing this job for 40 years and I've never seen one person in 40 years of practicing medicine who had a heart attack, stent, bypass or a stroke who wasn't under some sort of stress at the time. Five categories of stress, you see everything's in fives. Number one is emotional stress. Number two is mental stress. Number three is excessive physical stress. I'm not talking about regular exercise, but I'm talking about the fat guy that runs for the bus. I'm talking about extremes of temperature. I'm talking about pain. I'm talking about an operation. Number four is pharmacologic stress, legal or illegal stimulants. I had a 
35-year-old guy, the space of an hour, had three double-shot cappuccinos, put himself into overdrive atrial fibrillation and a cardiomyopathy just by doing that. So having a couple of cups of coffee every day is good for you, but having six a day isn't. So pharmacologic stress, and then finally, infective stress in this pandemic era. You get an infection, whether it's COVID, pneumonia, influenza, urinary tract infection, tooth abscess, doesn't matter what it is, that can inflame your arteries and induce a heart attack. So try to minimize the stresses in your life as much as you can, and that will help you as well. So they're all my good tips. Now, the five keys of being healthy, there was a thing called the Morgan trial, M-O-R-G-E-N, out of Holland, that showed that people who practice those five keys versus, so so the highest quintile versus the lowest quintile had an 83% reduction in cardiovascular disease just by practicing those five keys. If I give you guys a statin to lower your cholesterol, at your age, you definitely shouldn't be anywhere near the damn things. I reduce your risk for a heart attack 20 to 30% with the potential for a bucket of side effects. So we always focus on lifestyle first, pharmaceuticals should be in the second part of your armamentarium, not the first part. Well, I think that's a yeah, great, great way to put that sort of advice and that sort of no BS approach. And especially the chat about the, the different forms of stress is something like that really needs to be considered. Keeping on the topic of students, I know we've got a few keen cardiologists, one of these in our course, and I was just wondering if you had any advice for, you know, students interested in cardiology and, and some, some life advice for those guys. Well, it, it is hard work. You've got to be very, very dedicated. The three A's, affability, availability, and ability. So, and I think if you really want to be successful in this job, and we all should want to be successful, you've got to like people. You've got to have that rapport with people. You've got to show people that you care. And that's that's so important. But also, you've got to know your job. There's no point being nice to people if you don't know the science and continually learn. I mean, the point about being a cardiologist and, and even any doctor at all, you've got to keep learning for the rest of your life. I mean, my family accuses me of being a workaholic. It's because of my hobby. My hobby is my job. And also, I mean, just in terms of the security of being a doctor, sure, you might earn the big bucks that, say, businessmen do, but you don't have the big crashes they have either. I mean, at the moment, my practice hasn't been affected at all by COVID. I mean, probably 10% less patients, but that's about it. Whereas other people's lives are being destroyed by this ridiculous pandemic. On that topic, would you have any sort of ideas about sort of future directions of cardiology and any challenges that the, the field may face there? Let's talk about the excitement of what's going, what I believe is going to happen over the next five to 10 years. So, so when I started practicing medicine, we had a, a handful of pills and a handful of procedures, and there was all pretty rudimentary stuff. And for example, the 30-day mortality from a heart attack was about 30%. Now, if you get into hospital with a heart attack, you're looking at well less than 3%, and that's the sickest of the sick. So there's a lot of really exciting things that have happened, but this is something about the future of medicine. You might be prescribed three or four or five drugs. You might be on four or five or six supplements. And I think what's going to happen is the pharmacist of the future will become the pharmacist of the past. You'll take all of those things into your pharmacist and they'll put all of them into one nano pill that you swallow every day. And and the technology is there. It just has to be up to some clever people to figure out how it's going to happen. The other big deal is we're moving towards biologics. And the biologics means people are having to be injected once a week. So once a week or once a fortnight. So in cardiology, we've got these PCSK9 inhibitors to lower cholesterol. It's a fortnightly injection. 
But I think we're moving towards micro patch technology where you just put the patch on the arm for vaccination won't be a jab. It'll be a patch on the arm that you leave for 24 hours and then take it off, then you're vaccinated. Gene therapy, I think, is another very, very exciting um, angle here. One of my best mates is a guy called Professor Ian Alexander, who's the professor of genetics at Westmead Hospital. And he's now in a small group of kids with spinal muscular atrophy has actually cured them. These kids would die about age two. And with gene therapy using a viral vector, he's giving them a normal life. I mean, these are the exciting things that are happening all through medicine. So the whole face of medicine's changing. So the challenges I think for everybody are easier for, for younger people, but for people like me to keep up with these challenges and, and to adapt your practice around them, but, but that's the point about all of this. You see, don't go into medicine thinking this is going to be my career path. That's what I foolishly thought. And I've had all of these opportunities that have been given to me. So always be open to new things that happen. Don't have fixed ideas about anything. The smartest people are people who can think outside the square and don't always believe the conservative nonsense that's shoved down your throats. So that'd be the piece of strong advice I'd give to you. Thanks very much for that. I think that's probably a really good way to wrap things up. So I just want to say thank you, Dr. Walker, for taking the time. That's a pleasure. Thank you very much, Dr. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you.